Good to see you all. Like Brad said, we're going to take a break from Exodus here for four weeks for a short summer series that we're calling Gospel Community. In some ways, we're not really taking a break from Exodus. What we're doing is we're applying what we're learning in Exodus to the church today. So what we've seen so much in this story so far of God's redemption of a people is that he's not just calling individuals out of slavery. He's calling a whole nation of people out of slavery. And he's not just calling them out of slavery for no reason. He's calling them out of the darkness and they may proclaim the excellencies of God. They have a new identity They are a new people in a new kingdom with a new purpose together. So as we're seeing that unfold with Israel in Exodus, what we wanted to ask is, how does that play into us as a people who were called out of darkness into light, us as a people who are in a community of gospel-centered people? And um, what does it mean that we are a chosen race royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So this short series is, is going to look at uh, four things. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about our new identity as new people. That's what we're going to do this morning. And out of that new identity, the mission that we're called to as a church, now how does our identity and the change in our identity uh, change the way that we view each other, we view the world? So we'll look at how the gospel reorients our priorities that we're less inward turned to ourselves and more turned outward to others, that we think more often, more highly of others than ourselves. And so, in a sense, the gospel changes us in humility as a community, as demonstrated by Jesus. We'll also talk about uh, how God reconciles us to himself and to each other in relationships, and that oneness is important in the church, and that we, as a gospel community, ought to be striving for unity. Uh, It's one of the most important things in the New Testament in the letters that the apostles advocate for for the church is unity around doctrine, around truth in our relationships. And finally, and at the core and perhaps the most important, the gospel changes our loves. It changes our affections, our desires, what we want. It gives us new desires from the heart of Christ. And with those new desires, uh, we, we want to love one another in community, to love the Lord Jesus and to march forward with a great commission to love the world as he has. In other words, we're going to talk an awful lot about how the gospel has changed us completely. Not just us as individuals, not just me as an individual, but us as a community. And that the gospel has saved us from sin for a purpose. And part of that purpose is to participate in life with God's people. That our personal salvation comes with a new community. And these two things are inseparable, your personal salvation and the community into which God welcomes you. I'll I'll put it up front early. One of the things that we want to stress over the next four weeks is this, that our status among God's people is not voluntary or optional according to scripture. It's part of our new identity that the Christian faith is not meant for you to just believe and isolate. It is to believe and join the people of God. In John chapter 17, we see Jesus' famous last prayer for his disciples. We went over this while we were studying the Gospel of John not too long ago. But I want to revisit that because it tells us a lot about 
what Jesus desires for the us of gospel community in the church. We find out a lot about our identity in him. And one of the primary things we learn is that first and foremost, we are not our own. That we are the Father's and that the Father has given us to the Son. John 17, 9 through 10. I'm praying for them, Jesus says of the disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you, the Father, have given me, the Son. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And so part of what it means to be in gospel community is, as we just sung, to have Jesus at the center of it all, that he is the head of our lives and our community. Second, we learned from this prayer a few verses earlier that we are not primarily me. That the community of Christ isn't just a collection of atomized people that happen to gather together on Sundays and walk apart from each other, but that we're meant to be a people of Christ. Verse 7, I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me that they may keep your word. Third, we're not meant to live anywhere else but here and now together. In verse 15, Jesus says, do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So part of our new identity is not running together away from the world as a community, living in the wilderness somewhere, but that we would remain as a community in the world, in broader networks of community. And fourth, that despite being in the world and not of the world, we are nevertheless called to be set apart as a community, together being sanctified by the truth of the word that comes through us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Sanctify them, Jesus says in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So part of our identity is being sanctified together in the world. And finally, we are meant to reflect the unity, the oneness of the triune God. Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. What a mysterious passage. I in them and you in me, that we may become perfectly one, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. How does the world know that the church is loved by God? One of the ways, Jesus says, is our unity and love for one another. From this prayer, we see that the to live together as members of the kingdom of God, to fellowship together, and at the root of that word fellowship, this concept of friendship, and to be sanctified together as saints. Members, friends, saints. Live, fellowship, sanctify. These are three elements of the Christian identity as community that I want to explore this morning. And I want to explore before the gospel who we are because of the gospel, what that says about our identity, and what it says about our mission together. Because Christ is much more than merely your individual, personal Lord and Savior. He is, but he's more than that. He's our Lord and Savior. And I'm not saying our Lord and Savior, as in Jesus, is owned by us. We are owned by him. 
And when people say, who is your Lord? We collectively in one voice point to heaven and say, him. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we ought to remind ourselves <laughs> why relationships to begin with. I mean, if we're going to spend four weeks talking about relationships and community in the gospel, there's some things we have to remember or be reminded of. Like, first of all, why do we need relationships to begin with? Like, why can't we just take the Bible and go to an island and read it and be completely satisfied, fulfill the Lord's desires for us? Some of you are like, that sounds awesome. It's <laughs> exactly what I've been saving up for. <laughs> you about to burst my bubble? And I want to begin by asking this question. When did relationship begin? When did relationship as a, as a thing, relationship per se, relationship as a concept, when did the state of connection between multiple participants, when did relationship begin? I think some of us right now are thinking like, well, that's easy. It's Adam and Eve, right? So those are the first two people. But some other people are like, I have a more clever answer. Adam and God. And both of you are hitting on something that's really important. That the first human-to-human -human relationship was with Adam and Eve. And of course, that's idealized in the garden. In the first relationship between God and his, the apex of his creation, humanity is between God and Adam. Idealized in the garden as well. But relationship has... Uh, but both, both of these relationships, humans' relationship with God and humans' relationship with each other, both of those relationships are actually downstream from the fountainhead of relationship itself, which is where? God. How so? Scripture reveals to us that God is triune. He is trinity. It tells us over and over and over again that there is one God, who is revealed to us as Yahweh, as we learned in Exodus chapter 3. And this one God is very emphatic that he's alone in his Godship. There is no God next to him. There is no God above him. Isaiah 44, 6 says, I am the first and the last. This is God speaking. Beside me there is no God. And yet, mysteriously, in Scripture we learn that this one God is plural. There's a threeness to his oneness. Remember in 1 John chapter 1, the gospel began. In the beginning was the Word. We later learn the Word is the Son. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. So there's some kind of distinction. But the Word was God. So there's a distinction and a unity. And all throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit God himself, as sharing in the same essence, not only of the Father, but also of the Son. For example, Romans 9, 8, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong in him. Father, Son, Spirit, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, all of the attributes of God are shared equally and eternally among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of the desires of God are experienced equally between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God in you see, of many things, Scripture teaches God has always and will forever enjoy perfect relationship. That's not the only thing the Trinity means, but it is one thing that it means. 
He always and will forever enjoy relationship. Relationship is simultaneously an element, a facet of what God is, and also the blessing that he enjoys for being God. Put another way, for eternity future, the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. The Son has loved the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit has loved the Father and the Son. This goes in an unbroken relationship of love for as long as God has been around, which has been forever and will be so forever. So let me ask the question. Okay, we take the theological thinking cap off. Like, thanks for the Theology 101 lecture. What does this mean practically? When did relationship begin? It's your question. Relationship has always been. Because God has always been. God is triune. God is relationship is as eternal as God himself. Now, this is important because it tells us very clearly that humanity, both man and woman, were created in the image and likeness of God. Remember Genesis chapter 1, 26, we know it very, or sorry, 27. I guess we don't know it very well. Uh, Genesis 1, 27, uh, God created man in his own image. In his image and likeness, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we bear the image and likeness of God. And of the many things that this means, it means that we were created for, guess what? Relationship. Because how can you be created to reflect something that has enjoyed relationship and then yet not yourself? Enjoy it. In fact, the only thing that God said was not good in his creation before fall was what? That man would be alone. This is how important relationship is. But we know the story. Sin has destroyed our relationships, our community. What did we do? The first time we sinned through Adam and Eve. We hid from God and we hid from each other. We physically hid from God and we dressed each other up so we wouldn't see each other. So there's distance now between our relationships, fractured both horizontally and vertically. And not only did we hide from God, but we became his enemies, Paul says in Romans 5. And not only did we become God's enemies, but we became deserving of death, physical and eternal, Romans 6. And in this death, we become strangers to God. And in this death, we become strangers to each other. And strangers are not in relationship. So if we were made for relationship and community, but sin has destroyed us both, how then do we enjoy and participate in what we were created for? This is the question we're going to be covering today and kind of all throughout this series. And in some ways, really, when you think about it, it's impossible to fully enjoy complete relationship with each other until the new heavens and the new earth. Here's a fun thought experiment, right? How many of you know at least one person fully, truly, and completely in your life? At least one person. So even if you're married, do you completely know 100% all of the experiences, all of the thoughts, all of the desires, wishes of your spouse? No. You know them better than anybody else, but you still don't know them completely. And there's two things that limit us from knowing each other in a level that we're supposed to, right? I think one of them is sin, obviously, and another one is time. Now imagine if you could live where there is no sin and there is no more time, or that time is not an issue anymore because you have eternal life. And what if in the future, and this is just speculation, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will finally get to know each other 
completely and truly because we're not hiding from each other anymore. And I've got all day. All right? Imagine that kind of community. That's what we were designed for. We were built for it. We all long for it, don't we? I can't wait. That's not today, though. It's in our I don't have all time today. Uh, that, that's for the new heavens and the north. But we are given a, a blessing, a promise, a dress rehearsal. And that's the church. We're given a way to live in God's solution for broken community, the assembly of his people who were called together by him for his purpose. We are called together to live as members of the kingdom of God, to know and to be known by one another. Because sin has been destroyed through the resurrection of Christ. And through his redemptive work, through his example, we too are being freed from both the penalty and the power of sin. A few weeks ago, when we were talking through, or preaching through Exodus uh, 11, sorry, 12, 1 through 13, we were talking about the Passover, and I drew our attention to the first two verses in specific. I think I spent half the time talking about those, which was basically God's like, hey, uh, you got a new calendar now. The first day of the year starts on Passover. And we talked about how at Passover, God literally rearranged Israel's entire concept of time around his redemption of his people. That there was a BP and an AP. There was a before Passover and an after Passover. And it fundamentally changed the Passover because it was redeeming Israel from slavery. It fundamentally changed who they were as a people. And I said the same thing happens to us as individuals, right? There's a BC and an AD. There's a before Christ, and some of you are like, yep, <laughs> there was a me before Christ. But in faith, now there's an, a me anno domini. There's a me in the year of our Lord. There's a me under the lordship of Jesus. There was a time before Christ. There was a time after. There was a time before we were redeemed from sin. There's a time after. And guess what? The same goes for the church. The fullness of the redemption of Christ's bride is inaugurated in his death and at his resurrection. And the church is brought to life at Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection in Acts chapter 2. It's a beautiful imagery that uh, Augustine pulls together when he's thinking about Adam and Eve and their marriage and how Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a mystery and it's meant to image to the world the relationship between God and his bride, Jesus and his church. And he pulls all these things together into this very beautiful thought. He says that when Adam slept, God removed a rib from Adam's side to create his bride Eve. And as Christ slept on the cross, God created from his pierced side his bride, the church. And that at Pentecost, the church, just like Adam had life breathed into him, so he became a living being, the church had life breathed into her through the Holy Spirit. There is a before God does something big with his people and an after God does something big with his people. What bigger thing did God do for his people than send his son to live, die, and rise again? on her behalf. There's a lot of times in history, though, that that didn't seem like it was going to happen. That it seemed that God was calling people, and they were coming, and they were like, never mind. They were walking away. 
primarily through disobedience, through rebellion, through sin and idolatry. I think probably one of the lowest spots in the redemptive history of God calling people to himself has to be during the days of when a guy named Hosea was alive. You can read the history behind um, kind of what was going on in Hosea's day in like 1 Kings. uh, And uh, you can read prophetically through what God is telling Hosea in the book called Hosea. And Hosea is living during a time that was about two centuries after the people of God had split politically, geographically, culturally away from each other. In the north, there was Israel, and in the south, there was Judea. And uh, in Israel, in the north, they instilled for themselves this guy named Jeroboam, and there's no other way around it. This guy was terrible. He's one of Israel's worst kings. One of the first things he did, and see if this sounds familiar, uh, he made two golden calves, and then he told Israel, these are the gods that rescued you from Egypt. Well, that's funny, because we're reading that story, and I don't think that's how it went, <laughs> right? It's, 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 Mark Twain has this great line. He says, history does not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And this is one of those times that, that it rhymes, right? Jeroboam went beyond this. He created competing temples to Jerusalem. He created an alternative priesthood, which we're going to find out is a huge no-no. And uh, he, he had new feasts. Enter Hosea. God calls a man named Hosea. And, and, and part of Hosea's prophetic career is very unique to the other prophets. Not only is Hosea going to come to give a word to Israel through beautiful poetry, but he's also going to be a living parable for Israel to see exactly what God is experiencing because of Israel's sin and disobedience. If God is, in a sense, married, is the imagery, to Israel, the thing that breaks a marriage apart is infidelity is separation, is betrayal. And God says to Isaiah, I want you to live a life that demonstrates what I'm experiencing with Israel, my wife, who keeps wandering away to golden calves and other priesthoods and other temples. And so Hosea is called to marry a woman named Gomer who's a prostitute who habitually returns back to her profession. In this marriage, uh, Hosea and Gomer have three children. And God says, I want you to name one of those children no mercy. For, he says, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. You've left me for the last time. And another child he names not my people. For, God says, you, Israel, are not my people, and I am not your God. I'm not showing you mercy. You are not my people. That's quite a long way from what we're reading in Exodus, isn't it? that Israel is being showered with the mercy of God so that he could draw his people out of darkness. And now God has said, you're not my people and I'm not showing you mercy anymore. So technically the Bible ends at Hosea, right? We're not going very far past 1 Kings. And yet in mine, there's a lot more. What happened? God is always true to his promises, because he's always true to what he wills, because he's always true to what he desires. And he, his desire and his will is to covenant and to redeem and to love. 
He loves his people. He promises his people redemption. And he has decided to overcome their faithlessness with his own faithfulness. And ultimately, he overcomes his own people's faithlessness with the faithfulness of his son, the Lord Jesus. And this overcoming, as we read, continuing in the Bible from Hosea, includes not just the Jews, but the whole assembly of God's people, both Jew and Gentile. And so we fast forward from Hosea, where God calls Israel, not my people, because I am not going to show you mercy, to post-resurrection, Peter writing believers, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people from my own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were what? Not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not what? Received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Where is Peter drawing this from? The bottom of Israel, of the assembly of God's people's relationship with their with their husband, their creator, their God, and one of the pinnacles. Once you had not received mercy, now you have. Once you had not been my people, but now you are. Through Christ, God forgives our sin by showing mercy. Through Christ, we are called God's people. And it's through Christ that we have been given this new identity as members of the kingdom of God. The description that Peter gives in Uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, is kingdom language. Your chosen race. As believers, we are called to subject our superficial and cultural differences to unity found in Christ. That is the vision of the church and of God's people for eternity in Revelation. Not uniformity, but unity. We are a holy nation a nation that is separated out from the world, called to be of one mind under one banner, and on that banner, the cross and the empty tomb. We are a people for God's own possession. We're not our own. We don't belong to sin. We belong to Christ, and we belong to his righteousness. And in our new identity, we have a brand new mission, Peter says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. This is what he means by us being a royal priesthood. Each of us has a role to play. We offer up sacrifices of prayer and praise. We proclaim the gospel to the world. We teach ourselves and families and neighbors the way of Jesus. All this is captured in the Great Commission where Jesus tells us that all power and authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And so he tells us to go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We accomplish this mission by ourselves, together. Who's he talking to when he gives the Great Commission? Eleven men, the disciples, soon to become the apostles. We accomplish the Great Commission together as a community. Look, and I'll pause here. I know I'm preaching to the choir. Some of you are like, we know this is what the church does because this is what Jesus says. But I want us to to reframe that for a second. Yes, the church does because Jesus says. But if that's the only reason we do, we risk some kind of like spiritual exchange of goods. 
If we do good for you, Jesus, you do good for us. And, and that is contrary to the gospel. The church doesn't do because Jesus says. The church does because the church is something and Jesus has said. See, our identity is crucial to our mission as a community. Unless we understand who we are as a new people, any commission that we are given from Christ risks us believing that we're doing so that we can become God's people rather than doing because we are God's people. Our obedience ought to be done out of spirit change, spirit indwelled, new identity. The church does because we are and Jesus has said. Our gospel community has to act out of our new identity. We're not some kind of corporation with a common goal where you can come in and you know, show up and clock in and accomplish a task and go home. We're a new people, a network of renewed relationships whose mission overflows from a right understanding of who we are in our collective identity as a church. We are, in a sense, companions of the Great Commission. And companionship is one of these words that's not very well defined in our culture. We use it all the time. But what I want to define companionship is, is this this morning. A sense of duty and joy we receive from sharing responsibility with others. That's companionship. The sense of duty and the sense of joy that we receive from sharing responsibility with others. And I want to put something to us as a church in relationship to companionship in the Great Commission. Um, what if we stumble with the Great Commission as a church because we primarily think it's an individual calling? That Jesus wasn't speaking to the 12 or to the 11 at that point. He wasn't speaking to the disciples. He was speaking to an individual. I mean, clearly the Great Commission is to take the gospel to our neighbors. That is an individual calling, but it's more than an individual calling. It's not an individual calling alone. And I'll prove it from Scripture. I want us to see some passages from the New Testament. See if we can develop a pattern that develops. Who is it that is proclaiming the gospel? Who is it that is evangelizing? One of the core passages of evangelism, of the Great Commission, is Jesus' own words in Matthew 9, 37-38, where he says to his disciples, plural, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest who sends out laborers into the harvest. Not one, many. Did the church? Yes. After his imprisonment, Peter prayed in Acts 4, 29. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts, those that had persecuted him. Or, or, sorry, uh, upon their threats, those who had imprisoned him. And grant to your servants, plural, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So he's not just praying for him as an individual, but he's praying for the community of saints that they would continue in boldness to evangelize. And this boldness was in fact given in Acts 5, 42. We read that every day in the temple from house to house, they, being the first century believers, did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Again, Acts 8, 27. Now when they had testified and spoken to the the Lord, evangelism. They returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel, evangelism, to many villages in Samaria, or villages of the Samaritans. Acts 14, 7 and 21. 
And there they continued to preach the gospel. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Acts 15.35, the last one, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, evangelism, with many others also. So what's the pattern that we see in Acts? Is it atomized, individualistic evangelism, or is it evangelism as a community of believers in the world? In the New Testament, evangelism is often... evangelist is not, as we so often imagine, a lone ranger isolated from the broader community of the church. I think we struggle with this, A, because we live in a very individualistic culture, but B, because when you hear the word evangelist, one of the things that probably comes to mind is uh, some guy on stage who's got a ministry with his name smack dab in the middle of it, and he's telling you what to do. But back in your mind, you're like, I ain't doing that. You seem like you got it, <laughs> Right? An evangelist is a single person. This is a single person, but an evangelist is a single person among other evangelists. Evangelism is not, as we assume, only dialogue, one-on-one encounters. Of course, it includes dialogue, one-on-one encounters. But that's not the, the only expectation in Scripture. It's not even the norm in Scripture. One of the norms of evangelism is in Scripture is that the people, they, the disciples, the apostles, the believers, together, collectively, as a church, preached and teach and proclaim the gospel. Together. And what's great about this is that this joint evangelism, this joint obedience to the Great Commission, brought about in the New Testament church joy. Paul writes to the letter at Thessaloniki, closing you are, are the disciples, the apostles, glory and joy. The Paul is writing a letter to Mars Hill. What do you end it? By the way, you are all, are glory and joy. The earth, sorry, the early church took very seriously the Great Commission. And they took very seriously working together in the Great Commission. And they took very seriously the joy that they experienced together in their Great Commission labors, I want to call what we see in Acts Great Commission companionship. Remember, if companionship is the joy that we receive from sharing responsibility with others, then Great Commission companionship is the joy believers receive from evangelism together. There's no reason you need to feel isolated, alone in evangelism. Perhaps you've wanted to share the gospel, but you feel alone. My question is, well, why don't you just do what the New Testament church did and invite a buddy and say, we're going, text them. They didn't text them. They couldn't text them. (laughs) But get with other believers. Experience great commission, companionship. We were called out of darkness into the marvelous life for a reason to proclaim the excellencies of him who got us But pairing up with somebody, for that sake, can also feel a little bit robotic, utilitarian, or pragmatic. There's something missing, I think, from these types of sermons and our discussions about gospel community. I think it's tragic, and that is this, friendship. 
We use the word fellowship, but who uses the word fellowship outside of the church? It's a fellowship hall. We're having a fellowship luncheon. Fellowship is an old word. which is synonymous for friendship. The community of church is not merely something we do, but someone we are. And as members of the kingdom of God, what we do is live on mission with him. But what relationship is it that we ought to have together? And if one of the things that we're doing is bringing about joy through Great Great Commission companionship, how often have you made friends with companions? That people who share a sense of duty and joy with you in a specific labor or task, you become friends with them. But as a culture, friendship just doesn't seem on that high of a priority for us. Imagine for a moment you're from another planet. I'm going to pick Mars. I'm from Mars. Uh, Because I like rovers. Um, And one drone. Um, So imagine you're from another planet. You have no experience with American culture at all. And uh, you get word from higher up, because your alien society is hierarchical or something. I don't know. They say, hey, what we want to do is we want to learn more about the earthlings called, that call themselves Americans. You have no clue what that means. You, you've never seen American movies, read American books. You've never heard American songs. You don't know any of American myths or legends. Imagine you receive that task. We want to learn something about American earthlings. And you say, okay, can I clarify, please? And they say, we want you to determine what is the most important relationship to an American. I say, sir, yes, sir, and you go. And you set about your research. You come to Earth, you listen to American song lyrics. You watch popular American movies. You read American books from the New York Times bestseller list. You watch Americans in parks and restaurants and theaters. After months of work, you come to your conclusion the single most important type of relationship that Americans seek, the one that their culture prizes the most, the one that they seek for the most, the one that they are terrified if they do not have, they will not live life to their fullest. The most important type of relationship that Americans seeks is the romantic one. All of our favorite songs have a hint of romance to them. We churn out rom-coms on a daily basis. Romeo and Juliet is the blueprint for all of our most famous novels. But where is friendship in our priority of relationships? We want to say that we want friends, but how often do we prioritize in our culture romance over friendship? And how often do we blur the line between those two, assuming that to have romance is to have friendship and vice versa. How many of our famous works of culture are renditions or revisions of the Romeo and Juliet story? How many of those have you seen in film and in book and in music? Countless, right? Now, how many renditions of David and Jonathan have you seen or read or heard? C.S. Lewis pointed this out to me in a great book called The Four Loves. He says, in the West, we obsess with romance, but friendship is not so necessary. Friendship, Lewis said, is like a side dish to the main course, which is 
romantic relationships. And I believe that this obsession with romance is the only or primary relationship that we seek is barreling our nation toward a friendship deficit epidemic. And I'm not alone. And I think the science and the statistics back us up on this. It was recently released an American Perspectives survey uh, that's got a pretty good pulse on what's going on in our culture. <clears throat> and uh, in its data, it looked at friendship over the course of a few decades. And it noticed some startling trends. The first one was that most Americans do not have very many close friends. So nearly half of us report that we have three or less friends. And that's interesting and alarming because that number has been declining since 1990. So in 1990, 33% of us said we had at least 10 or more friends. But in 2021, only 13% of us have 10 or more friends. In 1990, 16% of us said we had at least five friends, but that's down to 13 friends today. And perhaps worst of all, in 1990, only 3% of Americans said they had no friends at all, but that is up to 12%. 12% of Americans have no friends. And fewer Americans today have best friends. In 1990, 77% of Americans said that they had a best friend. And today, only 59% have a best friend. Men in particular are experiencing a dearth of deep friendship. This report also found that in the last week, only 30% of men reported having a private conversation in which they shared personal or emotional problems with a friend. Compare that to 48% of women. In the last week, only 25% of men reported that a friend told them that they were loved. Compare that to 49% of women. And in the last week, only 21% of men reported receiving emotional support from a friend. Compare that to 40% of women. And let this sink in for a second, because percentages is one thing, numbers are another. 112 million men last week couldn't share a personal problem with a friend because they didn't have one. One million, or 120 million men last week were not told by one of their friends they were loved. And 127 million men last week said they had no emotional support from a friend. It's crazy because I was, I was wondering where I was on this list, I'll be honest, when I was doing this research. And just this last week, uh, I had and I know he means well, at least he loves everything, but... <laughs> I'll take it when I can get it. But another one is from a really good buddy I made in the military years ago. We keep up, call once a month. A really good friend told me he loved me. 120 million other men didn't hear it. And if these numbers are correct, then it's reasonable to assume that many people, both men and women, even in the church, lack deep and meaningful friendships. And if we were created, that's a tragedy. And it's wholly unbiblical that there would be no friendship in the church. I'll be 
transparent with you, most of the counseling that I have done in the past year, most of it, the majority, has dealt with loneliness or broken friendship. It's basically all I'm doing with counseling right now. We are in a friendship epidemic. Friendlessness has no place in the church. There is a deep connection between our companionship in the kingdom of God, what Christ has commissioned us to do, and our friendship as a fellowship in the church in accomplishing that task. I'm not just making this up. Jesus tells us this in John 15, 15. He says to his disciples, I no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you what? Friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Notice that Jesus here is linking mission to friendship. What I am doing, because you know what I'm doing, you are my friends. Mission, friendship, link. Because the disciples know what the master is doing, because they know the mission of the son, they are called his friends. And as friends, they partake in Christ's mission work. They are together as disciple, companion, friends. I love this uh, passage from Lewis. That he says, a friendship arises out of mere companionship. When two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insider interest or even taste, which the others do not share it, in which, until that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You two? Only one. Have you ever experienced that? Now think about that in the context of the church. Think about how the fellowship of friendship is born in the church. I have a passion for theology. I really love the reformers. I listen to podcasts. I read books. I love the Bible. My favorite book is Romans. My life first is in Psalms. I was a great sinner before Christ redeemed me. You would not have recognized me. My heart bleeds for the unreached in our nation and in the world. I have a passion for the lost in our city. I suffered serious abuse in my past. I feel so isolated and lonely about it. My marriage is falling apart. I cannot shake this sin addiction. What? You too? thought I was the only one. Marcel, maybe it's time we just start making friends. <laughs> that part of church membership is friendship, a recovery of what the early church rightly understood. This past year has isolated us from each other, hasn't it? What we need to do now is to come back together to fellowship as friends in the gospel who thought we were the only one and have discovered that we have the same life experiences and that the Holy Spirit is doing similar or even the same things in people around us. That we have the same passions, hobbies, experiences, both pleasant and painful. And that our, our lives are, are far more familiar in the lives of other people. Companionship is far closer and friendship is far nearer than we thought. Friendship's not something that you can just, you know, go on matchmaker.com. It's not something that if you called the staff and were like, oh, you're looking for a friend too? Let me see. You are most compatible, <laughs> right? <laughs> Friendship is birthed in these types of conversations, ordained by the Spirit. 
It's not quality time we're after in friendship, it's quantity time. And I, I think that one of, the, one of the ways you can do that, obviously, is, is to gather together. We do that on Sundays, don't we? But how many of you are going to have conversations with, the, with each other after this? Um, join a community group. Join a Bible study. Uh, you don't need us. Look to somebody around you and be like, do you want to get coffee? Do you want to get lunch? Spend time with one another. I will say, say though, that, that one of the primary ways that we want to serve you and to foster fellowship of friendship and companionship here at Mars Hill is through community groups. So if you're interested in them, please email me, kyle at pomh.org, and I would love to get you connected with community groups. We don't have enough. Um, COVID did a number to us, right? There, a lot went through, a lot died, a lot are restarting, but we need more community groups. So if the Lord's been pressing on your heart to host one or lead one, please get in contact with me. What we want to do is create spaces where true fellowship and friendship and companionship can flourish so that we can do life together in the kingdom. Do life together. Who's heard that before? That's almost cliche, right? Um, anymore. Oh, we're just doing life together. What does your community group do? Life together? Okay, what does that mean? I knew you guys were a cult, but I'm interested. I got five minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, do life together. So for some of us, doing life together means like dinner once a month, and you complain about your toddlers, <laughs> right? Uh, that's an admission of guilt. Um, <laughs> but what, what I mean when I, and I hope what we mean as a church is when we say we do life together, what we mean is being sanctified together as God's saints. Like that's what we mean by doing life together. Dinner is great. I won't say complaining about your toddlers. Doing, having dinner and talking about family is great. How is that sanctifying us together? How, how are our friendships sanctifying us through the spirit? Because one of the primary things that comes out of our identity as a community of believers is that we are sanctified together. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5, you yourself, speaking to the church, are like living stones that are being built upon a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is actually the context of his description of the church, the one that I read over us before, we, uh, before I preach, the one that Brad read to us today in our primary text that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. In other words, the gospel makes us a new people with a new identity. We're now members of a kingdom. We're friends in fellowship for a specific purpose, to be living stones whose cornerstone is Christ. When we look down to see where we ought to be in this structure, he's the one that guides us. Uh, to be a spiritual house. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit indwells you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And, and to be a holy priesthood, the word holy is important here. It means, in Greek, it's agios. And it's where we get our word for saints from. In short, Peter says that a, a primary purpose of the church, one of the main reasons we are, is for the sanctification of the saints. What comes to mind when you hear the word saint? probably thinking uh, someone worthy of veneration and honor, um, very holy people, righteous, they're pious, they're honored in stained glass and stuff. And a couple of you were like, actually, I thought of a football team. <laughs> but now that you say it, stained glass stuff, right? 
saints comes from the word holy. And uh, in the New Testament, Christians are called saints about 60 times, whether explicitly or implicitly, directly or indirectly. Compare that to the amount of times they're called believers, 12. And guess how many times believers are called Christians in the New Testament? Twice. Once directly and once indirectly. So the thing we call ourselves, Christians, believers, are in the New Testament. The things we never call ourselves, saints, is what the New Testament almost overwhelmingly calls us. The New Testament overwhelmingly calls followers of Jesus disciples. That is the pound for pound, most, the greatest descriptor of, of, of us, right? But second is saints. And uh, when we hear that we're saints, we shy away from that, right? I think for a couple of reasons. One, let's be honest, it comes with some theological baggage. Like, I don't want to be on a stained glass window. Um, but really, when you think about saints and in its relationship to the word holy, you don't really feel holy. But we prefer the word believer. Why? Well, now, believer has to do with your mind. Less about moral and ethical purity, more about doctrinal purity. So I can control what I hear, I can control what I read. I can control what I think. So I prefer to be called a believer. But the New Testament says you are a believer, but you're more than that. You're a saint. Here's the deal, Mars. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. Not because you are holy, but because you're being made holy. Not because of your holiness, because of Christ's holiness. Not because you earned the title, but because Christ earned you. Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. And not because we are perfect, but because the Holy Spirit is by his power alone and by his work alone perfecting us. The church is a community in which we are sanctified, that we are saints being made saintly as we are fed on the truth of God's word and we are formed in this new temple community together, a space where the Holy Spirit dwells. How does that happen? That's what we're going to talk about over the next three weeks. The Holy Spirit sanctifies the community of the church by doing life together in humility, truth, and love. But before we get to what the Holy Spirit does, I want us to remember where we were because contrasting where we were to who we are and where we're going ought to always bring us back to the foot of the cross in Thanksgiving. But we need to know before what the Holy Spirit does to us, before that we need to know what the gospel has done to us has resurrected us from death, from a former life. You have died, Paul says in Colossians 3, and your life is hidden in Christ. That there was a different way, a BC for us as individuals. There was a BC for us as individuals in a church. And there is an AD, and Paul reminds us of what this BC looked like. In Colossians 3, he gives us five things. One of them is sexual immorality that we were allowing our feelings and emotions and our culture to dictate who we are and what we supposedly need to satisfy us. But in that life, weren't we always left wandering from one kiss to another, from one partner to the next, from one website to the next, from one novel to the next, from one identity to the next, always looking, never finding. Paul says we were impure. So refusing to consider even for a moment whether our holy creator was pleased with what we were doing and who we were becoming. Who's he? We thought. 
but that despite the promise of culture, I always felt that there was something wrong, even though what felt wrong the world called right. Paul said that we were given over to passion, that we were giving ourselves wholly over to our wants and our perceived needs, disregarding God, his natural law and neighbor, and in pursuit of happiness at any cost. And yet, we were filled with anxiety and sadness, depression, and the confusion was unbearable. I'm in pursuit of happiness. How come I'm not finding it? Paul says, uh, we were into evil desires, acting in flagrant rebellion against the holy God, usurping his desire for our life, both now and into eternity, and in defiance, waving a battle flag against him, choosing to reap our consequences, choosing for our own home eternal death. All this, Paul says, was as a result of covetousness, which he calls idolatry. Essentially, all of our problem is we've worshipped the fallen creation and not the holy creator. And that will always leave us disappointed, will always leave us betrayed, will always lead us to death in these you too once walked when you were living in them, Paul says, B.C. But as a community, A.D., put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, saints, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint with one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. What is friendship for if there's no forgiveness? And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule over your hearts. We are in the kingdom of God. He is supreme. To which, indeed, you were called in one body, this church, and be thankful. That's who we were. That's who we are. And hey, maybe this isn't you. Maybe what I'm describing as present tense or past tense, for many of us, you're just being described as present tense. And you want to put to death what is earthly in you, as the Apostle Paul says. But here's better news. You may want that for yourself, but God wants it even more for you than you can possibly imagine. You have no clue how bad God wants for you to put off the former self and to put on the new self. You need only confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead and you will be saved. To confess, to admit, to believe that Jesus is Lord of your life, your thoughts, your soul, your identity, your body, everything about you is not yours, it's Jesus's. That you submit to his lordship, your identity, sexuality, desires, goals, habits, and life. And to believe in your heart truly that he was risen from death. To know that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ because he is raised victorious over Satan's sin and death. All this we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. Pulling together the saints who are in fellowship as members of the kingdom of God together recognizing that it is Christ's shed blood on the cross, his victorious resurrection over death is why we're here to begin with and to celebrate it together as a community. It's one of those precious things that we can do as a body of believers in sanctification. And for that reason, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together to culminate this first in a series of four. What does it mean to be in gospel community? The earliest gospel community was 12, then 11. One of the first things they did together was to reimagine the Passover dinner and its fulfillment of Christ. That as God rescued his people from Exodus, 
into freedom, so God was about to rescue Jew and Gentile from the darkness of sin into the freedom and liberty of Christ. The night before his betrayal and execution, Jesus, in an upper room in Jerusalem, took the bread and wine of that meal. And with the bread, he broke it, and he told the disciples that this is my body broken for you, that the cost of your redemption is me. And he took the cup of wine, he blessed it, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you, that the power of our redemption is red and thick and warm and flows from the pure side of our Lord Jesus. And that as often as we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we would proclaim, backward-looking, the death of Christ which ransomed us, and forward-looking, his future redemption of complete renewal and restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. I have to my left and to my right cups for the Lord's Supper in those two elements. And I would like for right now for us to spend a, a short period of time in contemplation, asking the Holy Spirit to reflect on our hearts or to reveal in our hearts for reflection, sin that we must confess, to nail to the cross, and when you taste of the elements, to know for sure that your sins have been paid for. And to know that your return to the seat means Christ is coming again and you have proclaimed that to the world. Let's meditate, pray, and enjoy communion as a fellowship together. Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us through the shed blood of your son and his glorious resurrection over sin and death. We recognize him as our Lord, king over the kingdom of God in which you have brought us. We recognize that you have given us an incredible task of proclaiming your gospel to the world and that together as a community we might do so in the fellowship of friendship, knowing all the while that we are not perfect, but by your spirit we are being made so, that we may be delivered over to your son, the bridegroom, as a spotless bride. Father, we confess our sins to you. We know that all of your promises of forgiveness find their yes in Christ, and so we declare that over this church. Father, we thank you for the incredible lengths at which you went to redeem us. It's through your son's precious name that we pray. Amen.